Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we meet the new president of the Australian Institute of Physics, who has spent much of her career pondering the mysteries of dark matter. But first, Physics World's Tammy Freeman is in conversation with the CEO of a company that is using photonic integrated circuits to develop a portable imaging system that can monitor the progression of eye diseases, such as age-related macular degeneration. This is a disease that affects one in four people over the age of 60. Optical coherence tomography, or OCT, is a non-invasive imaging technique that's used to visualise the retina to diagnose and monitor eye disease. Current OCT systems, however, are bulky and expensive, and the imaging procedure is only available in hospital clinics or at an optician's. UK startup Siliton hopes to change this. The company's developing a portable OCT system that patients could use in their own homes, The technology enabling this transition is the use of photonic integrated circuits that pack hundreds of optical and electronic elements into a single chip. Siliton's now demonstrated that its photonic chip technology can acquire subsurface OCT images of a retinal phantom. I'm speaking today with Alistair Price, the company's CEO, to find out more. Hello, Alistair. Hello. So, first of all, Could you briefly explain how OCT works and and what an OCT image of a retina actually shows? Yes, so OCT, or optical coherence tomography, is essentially the optical analogue of an ultrasound. What it does is you uh, take, in our case, there are a few different ways that you can actually do the implementation, but in our case, you have a broadband light source and you split that light into two arms One of those arms leads into the eye and you then get reflections from different layers of the eye. Now, those reflections come back to your system. You interfere them with the other arm, which is your reference arm. And from that interference pattern, you can then extract spatial information on those different layers of the eye. And from that, we then reconstruct an image. Uh, In the eye in particular, we are primarily focused on the retina. You can apply to to other parts as well, but in our case, the retina is the really important part. And the retina has multiple layers within it that doctors like to look at when they are diagnosing and monitoring various eye conditions. So uh, it's ideally suited really to that kind of system because it's a multi-layered system. Obviously, being, being the eye, it's quite easy to get light in and out. And the resolution of OCT as well is particularly well geared to the fine features that you need to look at uh, within the eye. Okay, and um, so how does this photonic chip technology make such a difference? Well, at the moment, the hospital-grade systems that you'll get if you go into either the eye hospital or also actually certain opticians as well have these systems as well now, um, those contain lots of mirrors and lenses and fibre optics, and so it's very bulky. It can take up an entire desktop. Uh, it's very expensive. These systems range from tens of thousands to even over £100,000. And also it's fragile. So if you do give the system a knock, then it can mean that some of the optics inside misalign with each other and somebody can have to come out and fix it. 
a photonic chip compresses all of these optics down onto a small piece of material that is basically the size of your fingernail. Now, the key thing with, with these photonic chips is they are fabricated in a very similar way to the electronic chip in your mobile phone, but rather than controlling electronics, they guide light. And that means that we can scale them a lot more easily than you can scale current technologies, which need to really have quite a manual assembly process. But also because it's a single piece of material, if you drop it, then there's no misalignment that's going to happen there. It's going to be absolutely fine. And crucially, that scalability of the technology means that it's a lot cheaper than uh, building a, a traditional system. And uh, it's it's also something that can then be made a lot smaller and then you can easily have something that goes into your handbag, into your drawer, into your rucksack, wherever you want to put it, rather than having to have an entire tabletop devoted to the technology. Okay, and that's, that sounds great. Um, so um, you've recently announced that you've recorded the first OCT image using this photonic chip device. So how did this image that you took, how did it compare to an image taken from a traditional OCT system? Yeah, so I should note it's the it's the first image that we've taken. There are academic groups that have done done, done images in the past as well, um, but it's it's something this technology we see as augmenting current OCT provision. What we're really looking to do is to monitor specific conditions and to make it easier for clinicians to treat people when they need to be treated, rather than uh, in lining up with when they happen to be in the hospital or anything like this. So. It's not as high quality as the kind of image you'll get in the hospital, but it doesn't need to be. It just needs to show key disease features and let clinicians see uh, whether or not a, a treatment is required. And in our case, uh, that, there are a few different diseases that it could be used for. But one of those diseases is uh, something called diabetic macular edema. It's something that diabetics can get, as, as the name suggests. And when you try to treat that, you often look at the retinal thickness and how that's changed. And with our image, you can already see the thickness of the, the artificial eye retina that we imaged. So that's already uh, at a level where you, know, you could uh, start using it for, for a treat, no treat decision around that. For some of the other diseases, though, it is a slightly more complex procedure. You do need to be able to see more details. So our next generation chip that we're going to be working on after this will allow us to improve the image quality and get it up to basically we want to hit the minimum point to uh, to get that uh, treat no treat decision because the higher quality it is, the more expensive it's going to be and is really optimizing the quality against the cost to make sure that we deliver exactly what's required, but it's no more expensive than it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, one of the other um, diseases that you're targeting is something called age-related macular degeneration. Now, what, why are you focusing on that disease? Yeah, well, age-related macular degeneration is the leading cause of sight loss in the developed world. Uh, there's a one in four chance that each of us will be diagnosed with it when we're over the age of 60. Or to put it slightly differently, that means there's a really high chance that you or I or, or anybody listening to this podcast knows somebody who has age-related macular degeneration. It's a massive, massive problem. Um, and ophthalmology, which is the, the eye health speciality, that is currently uh, in the UK, in the NHS, it's uh, the busiest outpatient speciality. And age-related macular degeneration is the biggest disease within that outpatient speciality. 
there are about 300 million people that will have this disease by 2040. So it's absolutely massive. It has a big effect on people's quality of life. Uh, there are two forms of the disease. One is called dry AMD, which can't be treated at the moment, uh, but it's very slow progressing. But then the other form, wet AMD, about 20% of people with dry AMD will transition to wet. And basically, you get fluid buildup under the retina. That's why it's called wet AMD. And in that case, it can be treated, but you need to know as soon as the uh, fluid begins to build up that, that that's happening. And at the moment... It, the disease can progress faster than people are able to get hospital appointments. So it's also something could really, really benefit from having a home OCT as well as being a, a huge problem to be addressed. So, I mean, how would you envision that your system would be used by patients? So they'd have like a portable OCT at home and they could maybe just track or take images every few days and send them off to to be examined i guess and yes that's exactly right yeah. yeah so they would right right now if you go into the hospital and you think you may have transitioned to wet amd then you will go in and you'll get one of these hospital grade oct scans and that will be used to do the diagnosis and, and that will always be the case then they once they've got a positive diagnosis they will go and receive their first round of treatment, which is an injection into the eye. So not very nice, but um, but it does do the job. And then they will go away and may go away for about a month and then come back and do another scan and see how the disease has progressed. And there are two, there are two options open to doctors. They can either treat there and then if it is required, which is something called pro-renata, treat as required, or they can treat regardless but if it looks as though the disease has not progressed as much as they thought it might then they can extend out the time to the next appointment so that it might be six weeks instead and then you roll it out to two months and so on and that's called treat and extend now if a patient is diagnosed with wet md an hour device is available then they'll still go in for that first injection but then they will be prescribed our device and they'll take that home with them. And now instead of only being able to go to hospital once a month, which isn't often enough, it's just the best that we can do with the technology available to us. As you said, it will be once every few days, most likely that the, the doctor will ask them to scan themselves. Uh, and it will literally be a case of taking the system and either holding it up to their eye, they're able to do that, or we'll have a uh, basically a tripod that can deploy uh, if not, and they will take that scan, it will automatically check on board the device whether they've you know, correctly taken a scan of their eye, they haven't accidentally turned it on and fired it on their foot or anything like this. Um, and then it will go off into the cloud where there'll be some basic, uh, basic image recognition. It will extract key disease metrics, which is something that often happens in the hospital anyway. You'll often have a technician extract these key disease metrics before forwarding them onto the clinician. The clinician will set thresholds for these disease metrics. So for example, has the fluid exceeded a certain volume? And if that does happen, then it will trigger and alert with the clinician who can then have a look at the image and say, okay, yes, I want to bring the patient in to be treated. And the difference between the two approaches will be that the patients can always be treated as required. You can always do this PRN approach or pro-renata. And they will be getting the treatment basically as soon as it's humanly possible after their disease progresses further. 
rather than when they happen to be in the hospital a few weeks later and suddenly discover that uh, that their sight has degraded. And this is really, really important because it's not just a case of, that. you know, if you do lose sight because of age-related macular degeneration, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get it back. So that's one thing. The longer it takes for you to be treated, the more sight you've lost. However, on top of that, actually the treatment takes longer to work if it's administered late. So you get a double hit there. And one of our uh, one of our advisors recently did some research that showed that for every three to four weeks of delay in the space of a year, then uh, you lose, if you, if you know the uh, sort of visual acuity lettering charts, uh, you lose one line of, of th- those charts uh, f- in that year. So it's it's pretty significant, and uh, and so it could make a huge difference having this device in the home. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, basically, the you're developing this low cost system that patients can have themselves, and it's it's not really for initial diagnosis. You're targeting this at monitoring, like really regular monitoring of fast progressing diseases. Um, yes. Yeah. Are there other eye conditions that could be similarly monitored with the system? Yeah, absolutely. So diabetic macroedema is the other one that I mentioned a bit earlier. Yeah. That is something which um, it also has to be treated uh, in a similar way. However, it largely affects younger people. So although not as many people are affected, in a lot of ways, the impacts can be much larger because if you're going blind in your 30s, then obviously, you know, you're still working, you might have a young family, and if you can't drive anymore, then then that's not great. And, and this is the other thing that actually it's not even just about going blind, it's just about losing a bit of sight, because you don't have to lose very much sight before you lose your driving license, and, and it has an enormous impact. So yeah, diabetic macular edema is another one. Uh, there are things like something called retinal vein occlusion, uh, which, which you can also be used for. And to be honest, in the long run, Basically, any eye condition that needs to be monitored remotely, we would hope we would be able to address. The device might change slightly based on that because we're basically targeting it very, very clearly towards a certain subset of diseases to keep that cost low. But uh, yeah, anything that a traditional OST can monitor, we we would aim to with some form of that device. Okay. And um, looking at the device, so you've demonstrated that you can take an image now. Have you built a prototype system yet? How far through are you on that side of things? Yeah, so we have a an early version of a headset, which we, we've basically gone through a few, uh, I guess, phases as a company now. So when we first started off, the first couple of years, we didn't have any investment. We were bootstrapping and, and we didn't spin out of the university or anything like this. We just started with an idea and then we're insane enough to decide to try and do it. Now, the thing with developing photonic chips is that although the per unit cost is very, very low when you get to scale, when you are initially developing them, there is a set of cost, and that is tens of thousands of pounds, which we didn't have. So we managed to obtain a chip initially from a foundry who we're now close partners with, and uh, that chip was something that I knew they would have from developing their fabrication process. And on it, it basically just contains a load of test components that they used to see how well the process worked. But I thought, well, we could probably wire them up and make a rudimentary OCT out of it. Now, that version of the chip is now obsolete from a company perspective because we uh, now have a Kepa, our, our full device that took this OCT image that you saw. 
but that first version of the chip we've now been using to help develop the sort of binocular headset type device that goes around it. And we do have a first pass at that system. There are a lot of things still missing from it, but the I guess the core structural elements are there. And we are now going to work on a an next version of that that we're going to incorporate a Kepper in. And the idea is we'll be basically getting our next generation of chip in. And every time we get the next generation of chip in, we'll take the previous generation and we'll put it into a new version of the headset and slowly build that up until eventually we have uh, the full system. And I guess once you've got the system, it, will it be sort of reasonably easy to scale up the manufacturing of the chips and the, and the system itself? Yeah, it should be. So the manufacturers that we're working with at the moment, there are, there are two key elements. There's the actual fabrication itself, and then there's also the packaging of the chips. And the packaging of the chips is considered the harder of the two things, really, and the more expensive of the two things uh, for, for most photonic chip companies. But in, in both cases, we are currently working with, with companies who can both do these early stage prototyping devices for us, but then they also have large scale manufacturing techniques and technologies in place so that we can scale up to the number of units that we will need uh, to address this problem. Excellent. And then finally, so, you know, what's next for the company? When do you see um, the system maybe sort of being actually distributed out to, to patients? We're still a few years away from full distribution. Right now, we're trying to raise our next funding round so that we can do a few things. One is to image a real eye. So now that we understand how well our system's working with the retinal phantom, we think that imaging a real eye is, is probably quite feasible. Um, so we'll do that. We will, and we'll be looking to incorporate that with the next version of the headset as well, and hopefully try and try and take that directly with a version of the headset. Um, and then also we'll be developing the next version of our chip and building in that most of our components have actually worked uh, beyond the level that we originally spec them at, which is great. But there are still a few that we always knew were going to be under spec compared to the final device. They're performing exactly as we wanted them to, but but they need a few improvements to get to the final device. So we'll be implementing those improvements in our next chip run. Uh, that'll be the Blue Jet chip. And with that and, and the headset, then we'll hopefully be getting to clinical trials in around sort of 18 months to two years. It all depends on how much money you raise when in terms of investment and things like this. We want to go as fast as possible. Uh, but also the economic climate is not entirely conducive to that at the moment. So, yeah. so it's a bit uncertainty. But we, yeah, we're aiming for 18 months to two years to have, to have this really finalised and then be going into clinical trials. Uh, and then it's we would hope within a year of that easily we would be then fully regulated and and starting to go out and and get this to real people. There are a few pre-regulatory things we can do as well, which which we will be exploring, but those are still under discussion with a few few different potential partners. So so watch this space. Excellent, I will do well. Thanks very much for speaking to us today. That all sounds really exciting. Um, thank you for your time. That's right. Thank you for having me. There is much that we don't know about the universe, and understanding the nature of dark matter is at the top of the list of challenges for many astrophysicists and cosmologists. Next, 
physics world's Matindarani is in conversation with the dark matter physicist Nicole Bell, who is also president of the Australian Institute of Physics. So if you love physics, you're probably quite into astronomy, astrophysics and cosmology. And you'll love our next guest, who's Nicole Bell, a physicist at the University of Melbourne who has spent her career studying the mysteries of dark matter. Nicole has also just been appointed as the new president of the Australian Institute of Physics. And she's here with us down the line from sunny Melbourne. I hope it's sunny in Melbourne. It's the evening there. Is it still sunny? It's a little bit sunny. (laughs) A little bit something. All right. Um, All right. Well, let's get started. So for those of you who don't know who you are, do you want to um, just quickly remind us about your career to date? How did you how did you start getting into physics and how did you end up where you are today? Okay, so I'm a theoretical physicist who works primarily on astroparticle physics, sort of at the boundary between particle physics and astronomy and cosmology. Um, So my career so far, I I studied here in Melbourne, um, got a PhD here back in 2001, and then I went overseas and spent five years in the US, first at Fermilab and then at Caltech, and then I returned to Melbourne to start a faculty position here around 2007. And I've been here ever since working on things like neutrino physics and dark matter physics. Right. So in terms of the, the, the subjects you mentioned, neutrinos and dark matter, why, why do you find those particularly interesting? What, what attracts you to those topics? Well, I think perhaps it's because they're a challenge and who doesn't like a challenge? But in terms of dark matter, there's something very fundamental about a universe that we don't understand yet. And there is something very appealing about trying to figure out what's going on there. And so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a puzzle to be cracked. Right. So what sort of, um, what are the main research projects you're working on at the moment? Because I mean, obviously there's lots of, you're a theorist, but there are, you know, lots of um, data coming in that um, from all sorts of experiments around the world. What are, what are your main focuses at the moment? So one of the nice things about working on dark matter and neutrino physics, and there's some natural links between those two topics, is that there is a lot of activity both in the theory community and the experimental community and at the intersection of the two. It's it's a field where theory and experiment really work together quite well. Um, So, you know, one of the aims of the worldwide dark matter program is to directly detect dark matter particles in our vicinity, in, in our halo in, our, in detectors that we can build on Earth. Um, and from the from the theory end, we're working on that here in Melbourne. One of the challenges in, in that dark matter direct detection program is how to detect dark matter that's relatively light. Um, the experiments that we build to do this, you know, if, in some sense, you can think about them as a billiard ball collision between a dark matter particle and an ordinary particle sitting in a detector. And if it's a really light, dark matter particle hitting a big nucleus. It's like a ping pong ball bouncing off some heavy bowling ball and it doesn't do very much that we can detect. And so there's experimental challenges to try and detect very light dark matter particles. And the the group here in Melbourne is is thinking about different ways to try and do a better job detecting light dark matter light dark matter, um, either by doing some sort of different sort of experimental searches 
or finding out about those lighter dark matter particles in different ways using astrophysics data. One of the other things I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years thinking about is the accumulation of dark matter in neutron stars. So when we build detectors on Earth, we put some, we put a detector, we put it underground, and to try and make our chances of detecting something greater, we make our detector as big as possible. But there's a practical limit as to how big we can make these detectors on Earth. Um, and then you can think about where else is are there objects that you could use as a dark matter detector in nature? And one of the answers is, what about a, a neutron star? And you can think of a neutron star as sort of nature's huge dark matter detector and say, suppose dark matter interacts with the nuclei in neutron stars with the same sort of interactions that we're looking for in our detectors on Earth, what would be the consequences of that? And so one of the consequences is that the dark matter could actually accumulate in the neutron star over time and you could build up a population of dark matter in a neutron star um, and then there are some observational consequences that you could, go, you could go after. So, for instance, it might heat the neutron star up. In some extreme scenarios, it might collapse the neutron star to a black hole. So there's lots of interesting ideas you can go and think about. But the, the attraction to looking at something in astrophysics like a neutron star is that it's a detector of mass comparable to the mass of the sun so huge compared to the maybe the one ton detector we might put down here on earth and so even though there's less control over this sort of natural astrophysical detector you know it wins on size and it wins by a lot mm -hmm. but you're not saying dark matter would only exist in <clears throat> neutron stars are you i mean what do you think our best bet is for what actually dark matter is our best bet for what dark matter is i mean Arguably, our best bet is something called a WIMP, which is a weakly interacting massive particle. And, you know, arguably, because it, you know, the theory description is nice. Um, and, you know, what appeals aesthetically to a theorist is not necessarily anything to do with reality, but the theory description is nice, simple, compelling in some sense. And, in terms of experimentally detecting these particles because they interact weakly, should be hard but not impossible to detect them. We detect standard model particles that interact weakly, um, like neutrinos. Um, so the, the sort of interactions that these weakly interacting massive particles, these WIMPs have, you know, should be in, in shooting range for big chunk of the parameter space we might want to look in. And so it, it's compelling to think that we might have a shot at detecting these things. But, you know, there, there are many different ideas about what dark matter could be. You mentioned some of the experiments that uh, you, you kind of collaborate, the people you collaborate with. I mean, how closely do you work with them? Do you, do you understand how the experiments work at a practical level? Do you get involved in helping to design them? Or do you, are you one of these theorists who never gets your hands dirty? Well, I'm certainly not in a lab building stuff or going down mines, um, but I do have quite a lot of interaction with experimentalists. Um, in Australia, the dark matter community is small but growing, but it's it's small enough that there is necessarily strong links throughout the community that span both theory and experiment. At the moment, we have a research centre in Australia called the ARC Centre of Excellence for Dark Matter Particle Physics. And the centre's theory team, which I lead, has quite a lot of interactions with the experimentalists in the centre, um, both, both in terms of you know, the current experimental program and sort of 
future things that we have lined up um, ahead of us. Um, I've also recently joined the Darwin Collaboration, which is a large international experiment which will develop the, the next generation liquid xenon-based dark matter direct detection experiment. Um, and again, in, in Australia, I've recently become involved with the Australian group working on something called Cygnus, which is a future dark matter directional detection experiment. Um, at the moment, our experiment's looking for dark matter interactions would hopefully see events, but if you saw an event, you wouldn't know the arrival direction of the dark matter particle. Eventually, you might like an experiment in which you could say, okay, the, the dark matter particle that I saw in this detector came from over there or in the other direction. Um, and so Cygnus' ultimate aim is to be able to do that. Um, so, so actually there's a lot of activities going on at the moment in which, yeah, the theory and experiment are sort of talking frequently and, and working together a bit. And you mentioned your colleagues in Australia. And one of the things I know you said in, um, we've also talked to you for our careers advice column, Ask Me Anything. And you said one of the nice things about the Australian physics community, it's not very big, but you all tend to sort of know each other and people collaborate quite, quite well. So in, in your role as president of the Australian Institute of Physics, I mean, why, why did you take up that role? What, what, and what are you going to be your priorities as president? You, you're in the job for two years. What, what are you going to be doing? I'm in the job for two years. I've been vice president for the preceding two years, so I've um, so I've had some some insight into so what this job is going to be about. Um, but for one thing, the Australian Institute of Physics provides a voice for the Australian physics community, and I felt this was an important activity in which I wanted to play a part. Um, and then it's also been, as you say, great for meeting physicists from all over Australia, not just working on particle physics and astrophysics, but working in condensed matter physics and quantum physics and people that I wouldn't ordinarily have a chance to talk to. And so developing this sort of extended professional network of you know, the physics community in Australia has really been a bonus. I didn't actually anticipate it at the time, but has definitely been one of the pluses. And what, what would you say are the main challenges for physicists in Australia and how can you how can you help them as you're during your time as president? So many challenges. I mean, I if, think if you ask one of my physics colleagues, funding would be near the top of their, their, their wish list. I think we always want more funding, but I don't think that's unique to Australia or um, or even to physics. Um, the priorities are many, but perhaps one of the key issues at the moment is to advocate for the importance of fundamental science. Um, I think governments are attracted to the idea of commercialization and translation, which is fantastic. Um, but while we're doing that, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we also have to do the, the blue skies um, research because research at that end of the spectrum will eventually feed into the, the longer term applications, um, even if the payoff isn't in 18 months from now. Um, so, yeah, advocating for fundamental science, I, I think, is important. Um, and perhaps another one is to encourage more women to pursue careers in STEM. This is a hard problem to solve, but we need to we need to keep working away at it. And I was going to say you've had a you know really successful career in in in, in physics for you know several decades. I mean, what, what's your advice for other people who are sort of just setting out in their research journeys? What's your can you boil down your wisdom into a couple of tips for them to to sort of be as successful as you have been? Well, I'm always cautious about giving advice because I think there's no one size fits all recipe for success. But I think I'd say 
be curious. Um, creative things happen when you explore the things that interest you and, and you sort of you, you just follow that interest through. It can take you places where you didn't end up going, didn't expect going, um, that the good things happen. So be curious. Find a mentor or two. That's actually really important. Um, and have fun with the science. That's what we're here for. Right, that sounds uh, that sounds very sensible. So anyone out there, please <laughs> remember what Nicole told you, and you may you may end up where she is. All right, lo lovely to talk to you, and, and thanks so much for your time, and good luck in your role as president of the Australian Institute of Physics. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Nicole Bell, Alistair Price, Tammy Freeman, and Mateen Durrani for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. Please join us again next week. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at some of the environmental issues surrounding the production of lithium-ion batteries those devices that have been ubiquitous with the rise of portable electronics and electric vehicles. Glester speaks to a metallurgist and a geologist about how materials used in the batteries can be extracted from the earth and reused in sustainable ways. That podcast is called How Can We Make Lithium-Ion Batteries More Sustainable? And you can find it on the Physics World website, or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.